Hey friends, want to let you know that I have a book coming out in March of 2024. It's called Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. If you've been listening to me for more than like five seconds, you've probably heard me use the phrase uh, exile or, you know, that we are exiles living in Babylon. And, you know, that's something I've said for many years. And so this book is kind of the culmination of my thinking through the question, what is a biblical theology of a Christian political identity. So this book uh, does just that. It looks at how the people of God throughout scripture navigated the relationship with the various nations and empires that they were living under uh, in order to cultivate a framework for how Christians today should view their relationship with whatever uh, state or empire that they are living under. So I invite you to check it out. It's available for pre-order now. Again, the name is Exiles, the Church in the Shadow of Empire. Check it out. Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is my friend Josh Porter. Josh is a uh, writer, a musician, and a pastor. And he recently released his book, With All Its Teeth Sex, Violence, Profanity, and the Death of Christian Art. Josh is. Um, <laughs> he's he's not your conventional pastor, let's just say. He, he is uh, he's an artist, um, a, a really provocative and profound thinker. Uh, I think he's a brilliant writer and uh, I just love talking to him. And this is a topic that he's thought passionately about for a long, long time. He's incredibly theological, very artistic. And in this book, he combines both of those themes together. And that's what we talk about. We talk about all kinds of things related to uh, watching mu movies, Christian music, what is um, offensive? Should Christians watch offensive themes in movies? And is there such thing as Christian art? Is there such thing as Christian music? What about worship music and so on and so forth. So uh, we do get a little bit edgy in this uh, conversation, uh, but I think we do so in a mature, tasteful way. So without further ado, please welcome back to the show, the one and only Josh Porter. All right, Josh Porter, welcome back to Theology and Raw. I don't know what number this is, two or three. I keep, uh, I keep showing up, yeah. <laughs> You keep tabs on this. Um, uh, so you have a new book out, uh, which I I usually don't just jump in and talk about people's books, but your books always have the best titles. With all its teeth, sex, violence, profanity, and the death of Christian art. Can Christian art go too far? <laughs> is how I want to begin this conversation. Um, can we begin there? Like, I mean, you uh, push the well. Let me know if you even like this phrase, push the envelope in artistic expression. Sure. That almost sounds negative. That almost sounds like a negative to me. way of putting it, which I don't mean Not it to, to be. Me. But okay, yeah. So so what, what, why don't you start by giving us your, what is your theory or theology of, of art in, in general and Christian art in particular? Well, I when I first sat down to write the book about what it means to be a Christian and to not just make art, but to receive art. Uh, I think that, you know, mm -hmm. there, are, there are many people, uh, as is my understanding, that kind of labor under this idea that to appreciate art or to even comprehend art, you have to be some kind of creatively wired individual or to have this unique palette, um, a God-given palette, if you like. And uh, not only is that not true theologically. It's just not true functionally. You know, everyone is inundated all day long with uh, all kinds of things that people have made for better or for worse. You know, you'll look at screens and you'll sit on furniture and you'll eat food. And um, so to argue that 
art appreciation is unavoidable, or at least art consumption, receiving art is unavoidable. You have to come up with, you have to work out a definition of what art is. That was pretty difficult. I thought that that'd be the easier part of the, the book. And you spend, I don't know, a couple of years reading through art theory. And a lot of our great, you know, um, art theorists have been, uh, figures throughout church history have been Christians. Uh, and yeah. there's all kinds of different, you know, there's the imitation theory and there's the moral, there's all these different theories of what art is and what qualifies as art. Uh, so eventually I abandoned trying to get it from those, trying to get it from, you know, Immanuel Kant and Tolstoy and those people. And, um, not, this sounds like such a pretentious thing to say, but I actually tried to just do a biblical theology of art and what, what qualifies as art in the Bible. Um, what kind of art does God make? What kind of art does God commission? Uh, and encourage. And the definition I use in the book is that when, when God or people make things that evoke ideas, emotions, or aesthetics, that's art. And so that definition doesn't have anything to say about like any moral character to the art or any kind of qualitative definite. You know what I mean? It doesn't say anything about whether or not it's good. Yeah. I find that when you ask people like what's art and what's not art, they um, tend to rush toward qualitative definitions like, well, you know, I don't know, you know, a film by you fill in the blank prestige director, that's art. But, you know, the animated a Minions movie, that's not art. But under the definition I use in the book, they both are uh, because it doesn't say anything about whether or not you think it's good or what kind of aesthetic qualities it does or doesn't have. It's just when God or people make things um, that communicate ideas, emotions or aesthetics, that's art. So. I think, you know, by that definition, you uh, open the doors to all kinds of like, okay, well, if, but that doesn't say any kind of moral thing about art or whether or not art can or can't be uh, offensive um, and, and according to whom and uh, what qualifies as quote unquote Christian art. And then, you know, I do that whole definition of art thing in like the first chapter of the book and then the rest is arguing out all that other stuff. Uh, but the long, the short answer to the question you opened with is, um, in my personal opinion, I don't believe that art can, quote unquote, go too far in the broad, like kind of, you know, objective sense. I do think that art can go, quote unquote, too far for the individual sensibilities. And that's where I would argue that things like, you know, conviction, discernment, uh, accountability and community enter in. Um, but, you know, historically, I guess I shouldn't use, historically is too long of sounding a term, but in modern church history, there's been a tendency to, you know, kind of react and say, this is offensive to me, therefore it should be offensive to everyone, therefore no one should be enjoying or receiving or even thinking critically about this art Um and, you know, that's why I put all those those buzzwords in the title, because those are the those yeah. are the things that tend to color our conversations, at least in um, contemporary Christian culture or Western contemporary Christian culture about like, well, is there sex in it? Is there violence in it? Are there swear words? Um, and which has led to a kind of, you know, deficit in Christian art appreciation, at least in my personal opinion. Yeah, would you say that like the whole idea of Christian art? I would love to explore. Um, well, I yeah, I have another question, but it's kind of maybe we should answer that question first. Like, what is Christian art? Because I've heard some people say, even like or even like Christian music, that some people say Christian is a 
an identity that a human being has. Uh, we can't, the idea of Christian art doesn't even make, it doesn't make sense. It's kind of a nonsensical or Christian mm-hmm. music. Uh, music can be sang by Christians. Music can contain themes that are related to Christianity, but the very wording of Christian music is kind of nonsensical. I've heard people say that. Was that would you agree with that, or would you? No, I I agree. My, but I would you know at, at least extend the caveat that theologically I agree that that's true. That you know, like uh, art belongs to God. He made it up. It was his idea, <laughs> and he's the first and and best artist. Um, so art, even art that is quote unquote anti God in its ideological content, they're still using a a resource that God invented. So I don't think it makes a a tremendous amount of sense to say like Christian art, because in a certain theological sense, all art is Christian, uh, you know, in the, in the idea that it belongs to God, God made it up. Uh, but I think, you know, functionally, there's a reason that we, use that moniker, you know, uh, and I, I, and if people, I don't mean to like, it's just kind of becomes a semantic conversation where someone's like a Christian band or a Christian yeah. movie. And I know what you mean by that. And it, it's almost like sub genres of music. You yeah. sound like a butthead when you're like post hardcore indie, wh- whatever, but to a certain person that's helpful. You know what I mean? They're like, great. Now I know exactly what you're huh. talking about. And there is, you know, like, the chosen is a Christian TV show you know, what you fill in the blank big worship band is a Christian band in the sense that it explicitly and expressly communicates um, Christian ideas at a surface level. And so in the kind of art and commerce world, you know what you're getting if I say Christian band or Christian movie, but there are a lot of great artists that make movies or that make music that, um, blur the usefulness of that moniker if you if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and in that sense like if i say i'm trying to think of um something big enough to use that everyone would or a band like um switchfoot for example uh which has had a tremendous amount of mainstream success in the music industry um and i'm i'm guessing a, a tremendous amount of people enjoy without knowing that the musicians in switchfoot are christians or perfect you know because uh they they don't sing songs that explicitly fit the kind of cookie cutter mold of what Christian quote unquote indus, Christian music industry music music should sound like. Right. Um, but as I don't know Switchfoot personally, but from what I understand, that these guys are Christians and um, they've they've gone about their musical career a certain way that doesn't look like you know even a band that, like the band that I was in, which you know we sang about Jesus pretty explicitly all the time and used his name in our song lyrics. That was just an aesthetic decision on my part. It wasn't any kind of industry decision or ideological decision, but I think, so I think it's helpful, you know, in conversation to identify certain things as Christian, even though theologically I would push back on that uh, paradigm, but I'm, I'm not trying to be a butthead if somebody's like, Oh, Switchfoot's a Christian man. I was like, yeah. I get what you mean by that. You know what I mean? The, the whole concept is a little fuzzy to me because when you start exploring like what constitutes a, let's just stick to music for a second and, and this I feel nervous because you're the musician I'm <laughs> everything it's not a musician but I love I love music and and I love inner you know thinking about these things um yeah what constitutes when does something become Christian music like if it sings explicitly about Jesus or what if it sings about true things in the world? 
what if it sing, does it have to correspond with biblical themes? Well, then we could talk, we can sing about genocide. We could, we could lament the absence of God. I mean, if we sang some of the Psalms, like Psalm 88, where God, you would think the guy's, I think it's a guy, the author, right? Is it David? I don't remember. Um, you would almost wonder if he's a believer or not. He's almost like deconstructing, you know, where God, where are you? And there's no resolution. Um, there's a ton of violence in the Bible. Like if we sing about the conquest of Joshua and the slaughtering of human children to clear the land for the Israelites and express, you know, uh, bewilderment over this, you know, is, would that be a Christian song? Because, well, it's singing about a biblical event. Well, what if he's saying simply saying a song you, you, about breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Do Christians not break up with boyfriends and girlfriends? Is that not an experience that Christianity is that a is that a anti Christian thing to do to have a boyfriend or to break up with a what if the boyfriend what, what if it was pushes you towards Christ to break up with his boyfriend? But you know, yeah. you know, what I'm, like what, what, when does something the line that I've sometimes said and this may be totally wrong on artificial love to hear your thoughts is you know. Is something promote promoting and celebrating a Christian view of things, which again can constitute God? Where are you? I lost my spouse to cancer, and I feel like you don't exist. That 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 it can be it is a can be a Christian expression that can promote a Christian worldview because that's the Bible does that. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being too long winded. It's something promotes a Christian view of the world or promotes an anti-Christian view of the world, celebrating vengeance. The Bible contains vengeance. It doesn't promote or celebrate vengeance. The Bible contains sin. It doesn't celebrate uh, sin. So is that the line we're drawing? Anyway, I'm thinking out loud. would love to. No, I agree. I agree with everything you said. That's why I argue that um, theologically, the idea of Christian art doesn't make a ton of sense, um, especially when you account for the individual's uh, interpretation, the viewer's interpretation, the reader's interpretation, the listener's interpretation. Um, because, yeah. and, you know, I don't mean to like beat up on you know, the kind of quintessential Christian industry music or worship music or anything like that. I like a lot of it. In fact, uh, someone made a joke with me the other day that how many times are you going to mention how awesome Amy Grant is in your art book? Like, <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a fan of these things. I'm not like, uh, yeah. it's not an, it's not a matter of like, Oh man, we've done so bad. We need to do better per se. I think that that, you know, can be argued you know, point to point on certain things, but I think that, you know, in my life personally, uh, the art that has most inspired me and not just like, you know, I was entertained, which is a, which is a valuable experience, but not just entertainment and not just, um, in the sense that, you know, I read something that inspired me to write, but inspired me as a disciple of Jesus and enriched my discipleship to Jesus, um, has been art that has either not been made by Christians or art that in some cases one could argue communicates something that is contrary to a Christian worldview. You know, um, mm. when my mom gave me a copy of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar when I was in junior high or, or something like that, those that was the kind of book that I was like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know that a novel could read like this. And it made me want to be a writer. My, you know, when I was a kid, my dad played me Aerosmith records. Mm. And I was like, I want to be in, a, yeah. this is awesome. I want to be in a band. That, those were the kinds of early experience that awaken mm -hmm. whatever creativity um, that I would argue, you know, is God given. 
Um, and, but even now, you know, in the, in the book, I kind of mentioned this experience of singing a song at church, um, which is, I like, you know, it's a worship song and I, I'm not going to bother with who sings it or whatever, but it was some kind of like a very basic, simple with the, and there's a value in this kind of lyricism, but I think the chorus was something like be lifted up, be lifted higher. That's the chorus. And we sang it at church and I, you know, it was, it was a meaningful experience to me got in my car to drive home from church and started listening to a record that, you know, whatever was playing last on my phone. This is a record by a musician who's an atheist uh, and and a nihilist and who uses biblical imagery um, satirically, you know, uh, to kind of um, satirize certain themes in the Bible or because these quote unquote archaic sounding ideas in the Bible are fun to use almost like, you know, like, uh, as word images. So, uh, I'm listening to something that was clearly meant, um, to communicate something contrary to my worldview. And I was suddenly moved by the spirit of God listening to this album and this song, not just because, Oh, creatively, I like the musicianship and you know, that's a, that's an important factor as well, but it was the lyrics. It was the lyrics in a way that the author did not intend that moved me in a, in a profound way. Hmm. So, you know, I think that, you know, another example I use in the, in the book at length is, um, the, uh, the horror film, the witch Dave Eggers is, um, or Robert Eggers horror film, the witch, which the only reason I use it is because there was this brief kerfuffle around the release, which, you know, I think was in 2013 or, um, where the satanic temple officially endorsed this film called the witch, so the satanic temple is, you know, that kind of evokes this idea in your mind, but really it's kind of like, um, not exactly what you think. It's some people on Twitter, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and they were, you know, heralding this film as this, uh, breakthrough against religious patriarchy. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I had no idea. So I go to see this, you know, film. And, uh, to me, to me, the witch, uh, was, honestly consistent with my worldview you know it was uh because in the worldview of the witch wow. which the filmmaker is not a christian and i don't think that the filmmaker has a supernatural worldview so uh he was playing it as a horror movie you know there's oh there's demons and there's the devil's real in the world of the witch and uh and the things that demons and the devil do are bad and a family comes to ruin because of it so you know i thought it was actually kind of theologically astute and interesting and aesthetically, it was really interesting to me. And I left wondering why in the world it was endorsed by the Satanic uh, Temple. To me, one could make an argument for, you know, the witch as a quote unquote Christian movie in as much as any other, um, <laughs> you know, like reading a story in the Gospels about demonic oppression and exorcism is a Christian reading yeah. experience. Um, but at the same time, I would never then, you know, as a pastor, get on stage at my church and be like, everyone needs to go see The Witch, because I understand that people have different <laughs> sensibilities. And, but the whole spirit of my book is trying to encourage, or even I might use the word push, um, Christians into a more robust palette uh, that could possibly uh, account for a film like The Witch or the album that I was listening to mm -hmm. uh, in my car without necessarily, you know, clutching their pearls and, oh, uh, this can't possibly have any kind of spiritual value because A, B, and C, and learning to, you know, interpret art thoughtfully. I th you know, because I think that when 
Christians have a deficient spiritual discipline of art appreciation. It, it contributes to all kinds of problems, not just in like, oh, you're missing out on art. It's, it goes well beyond that. You know, it contributes to problems with biblical literacy, um, and it contributes to, uh, I would argue personally, like a, a deficit in a um, a, a relational experience of, of God himself. That sounds really dire, but um, all throughout the scriptures, you know, God uses art and aesthetics, um, I, I would argue primarily, uh, almost uh, mostly to communicate to human beings to when, you know, like when the, the majority of God's speech in the Bible is poetry, that when God presents himself to individuals in the Bible, it's always with these insane visions of wild, incredible things that are highly symbolic and in some cases terrifying, you know, um, when God communicates by the spirit to, um, individuals throughout the new Testament, you know, instead of just being like, Hey, Peter, go to this guy's house and talk to him. It's like a blanket came down and alligators and, you know, whatever, like it's always wild, symbolic (laughs) and often kind of opaque and weird, offensive. Like, why doesn't God just say, go to the guy's house, you know, like it would erase the margin for error. Um, And it it seems to me that the answer is, well, God's an artist. He, he prefers why, you know, in the Jesus, why would you not just say, Hey, there's going to be this thing called the Lord's supper instead of like alienating an entire crowd of people by saying, you have to eat my flesh, you know? And everyone's like, what the heck is this guy on about? Jesus is an artist. He prefers (laughs) symbolism, even (laughs) offensive symbolism, even at the cost of, you know, the audience's understanding or comprehension of the of the metaphor. He even goes as far as to tell his disciples, like, I'm doing this on purpose because it's going to enrich um, the experience for people who have ears to hear. And it's going to divide the crowd that, that doesn't want to understand what that. If that doesn't sound like an artist, I don't know what does. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've heard from friends of mine who are much more into like movie uh, movie criticism and film and as you know, the artistic expressions of film. I've heard a lot of them talk about, you know, the horror, the genre of horror being some of the most, I don't, I don't know, they wouldn't say, well, maybe they would say Christian, the most, uh, the genre that um, is most conducive for exploring Christian themes. You mentioned in passing the, you know, well, not, you know, the witch and, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's in, intrinsically anti-materialistic or, you know, like it's by definition, horror, uh, need some kind of spiritual realm. That's pretty, that's a pretty Christian thing, right? Um, it acknowledges, again, it's intrinsically acknowledging, uh, the presence of profound evil, uh, even in the realm of some kind of spiritual realm. Like, these are rich biblical themes. Um, even if it didn't have an explicitly Christian theme, it does seem to open up Christian categories more than other genres. Would you agree with that? Is there something with the genre of horror that is Christians should, again, if they can't tolerate or whatever, if they're offended, yeah. and, you know, my wife can't stand, she would, she would have nightmares if she watched totally. anything with, yeah. you know, I'm on the other, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I remember watching The Conjuring in a dark hotel room by myself and it didn't even, I don't know, I just put to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, the Conjuring <laughs> didn't do it for you. Yeah, I think so. Be- if that doesn't do it, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I think, uh, I agree, you know, horror um, especially, I mean, I don't mean getting too far in the weeds of like movie history, but horror has had, um, a rich history of kind of existing in two worlds. And one is like, 
you know, popcorn horror or like a roller coaster horror. It's for the thrill of, um, ooh, you know, haunted house. It's scary and it's fun. And, you know, universals like Frankenstein's monster and that kind of all the way up to modern day, like, I don't know, the saw movies or something like that. Ew, gross. And, you know, you have a thrill and then you leave the theater and you're okay. You know, so you get to like, um, explore these ideas of, uh, what it would mean like to confront death or be terrified and survive. It's this roller coaster horror. Um, but horror has also had this rich tradition of um, intellectualism uh, all the way back to, you know, yeah. the late sixties with Roman Polanski, you know, Rosemary's baby or the exorcist in the seventies um, and, um, and on into a kind of horror Renaissance with um, a 24 studios is kind of a, a studio, a movie house that puts out a lot of, quote unquote, indie or art house horror films. Um, and then in between those two, there's an overlap of when those things come together in a meaningful way and you get something that appeals to a wide audience, um, but also has something profound to say about the human condition or, or human depravity or tragedy or death. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm not describing these two realms as to say like one's good and one's bad. I think I, that there's a place for both in the Christian experience of, you know, what I call the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. If you have the palate to tolerate that kind of thing. And again, you know, I wouldn't tell your wife, like, unless you go see this movie, you're not a Christian. Right. <laughs> um, but that said, you know, it's, it's not that hard an argument to make because when, when I sat down to write the book, I thought, that you know, it was going to. I, I wanted to make an argument for art that people might find uh, offensive, and and for spiritual value in it. And I ended up doing like having to do a lot more work to to get that argument across. I sat down to do like a biblical theology of the way, like I said, the way that God does art, the kind of art God commissions. And it ended up being not to like you know, because obviously I didn't make it up, but. Not to sound like uh, I've closed the book on it or anything, but it's kind of a slam dunk, you know. Like from from the very beginning to the very end of the of the biblical story, the kind of art and aesthetics that God likes, of course, you find beautiful, redemptive, like amazing, uplifting, encouraging, all throughout the scriptures, and that's that's fantastic. But you also find, just like you were just saying, like all kinds of like horrifying depraved stories, um, intense language, uh, sexual depravity, violence that would make most of our horror movies look like Disney movies, um, and, mm. and wild, dark imagery and symbolism. It's not just the Bible's depiction of history, which you could argue there's an aesthetic value in that as God, you know, he's the co-author, he's the divine author with his human author. So, he, the Bible says that in my theology, what God wanted it to say. And so, and he's the one who said, yeah, put that bit about, you know, the death by gang rape in judges or, or whatever it is, but that's documenting history. Even if you get away from documenting history, you have these horrifying poems about smashing babies and you have Jesus's grotesque parables about, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood or the servant cut into pieces, or you have, um, even throughout the the you know the uh, stories of ancient Israel, they're in rich symbolic sign acts that they enacted on a regular basis to tell the story of sin and salvation. Involve things like slaughtering animals and sprinkling blood inside, yeah. you know, like the tabernacle or the or the temple. 
Um, and that's not like, oh, in the ancient world, that was cool. That was not gross. You know what I mean? Like, uh, th- this was like a rich, right. symbolic and somber, um, uh, way that God, it was God's idea, uh, asked for Israel to remember the story of sin and salvation and death and, um, or to keep these ideas of their own mortality and the consequences consequences of sin ever before them. Like you said, if you read the Psalms, and these are poems, these are like creative, like uh, artistic expressions of the human soul. And yes, some of them are so incredible, so uplifting and so amazing, but a, tr- a ton of them um, almost sound nihilistic. They sound despairing. They sound um, borderline blasphemous, you know, like they... They question yeah. the character of God or the presence of God, and um, and and you know some of them then end on an uplifting note, and yet I will trust in you, that kind of thing. But some don't. Some like kind of mm-hmm. conclude on this right. unresolved, like that's it. Where's God? I don't believe that he he is who he says he is. And then it, and th- and those are designed for God's people to pray. <laughs> you know what I mean? To enter into a meaningful relational experience with God Himself. So, you know, if you have a problem with uh, art that depicts things that are depraved or horrifying or violent or um, blasphemous, uh, then you run into all these problems with the scriptures themselves. And of course, you know, you can make, well, I'll take mine in the Bible. Thank you very much. But I think it's worth asking, why would God prefer it that way? You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have to require these kind of sacrificial codes he did not have to by his spirit inspire these kinds of psalms and say yeah put that one in the bible jesus didn't have to teach the way that he did these are artistic aesthetic decisions um, and they tell us a lot about the kind of art that god the kind of artist god is and the kind of art that god prefers what god thinks is meaningful what god thinks is communicative and powerful so i think that that alone should tell us that there's a place for yeah. Uh, horror, you know, in literature, in film, um, in art, you know, and not, and even in visual art. If you look at like the art of someone like Francis Bacon and these kind of like nightmare visuals that hang on a museum wall, there should be a place for that kind of thing in the Christian experience of art. Do you know any Christian? That, like, is there a such thing as a Christian movie that's horror? <laughs> is that a and and why not? Like, we have Christian films sort of, I guess, uh, but they're all very, I don't know, pre- mostly predictable or just, I don't know. Um, we could, we could talk about that, but I mean, the genre of horror is just not, I don't know. I've never heard of a Christian film producing a horror film. Yeah. Although there's plenty of biblical material that they can use yeah. to draw. There have been these instances of, and this is going to sound like I'm trying to beat these guys up. I'm really not, but in the same way that we have films like fireproof or, um, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, like that kind of Christian, yeah. like explicitly Christian, Christian actors, we have, Christian, we have that kind of thing. Um, uh, at least I haven't seen them personally, but you know, I follow the movie industry and I'll see these kind of things pop up every now and then. And it could be the case that some of our more known horror directors or filmmakers or writers are, are Christian. And I just don't know about it. But if you look back again, like this is the second time I brought up the exorcist in this conversation, but um, the exorcist, uh, was overseen by a team of consulting Catholic priests. Um, the Catholic priests other than, um, father Karras and father Marin, who are the two kind of, um, protagonist priests in the film, uh, are actual priests who were consulting, who consulted oh, on the film and who, 
uh, show up in the film and do a, a decent job acting as well. Uh, and so there, there's a precedent for filmmakers who, uh, William, uh, William Friedkin, who died last year and directed The Exorcist, he wasn't a Christian that we know of. But, you know, there there's a precedent for filmmakers who understand like, okay, so the worldview of the film I'm making is, in the case of The Exorcist, uh, deeply Catholic. It's a, it's a story about Catholic priest and his experience of, you know, a demonic uh, oppression of a little girl and a family. And so he was like, I want this to be authentic. And, you know, so he calls in Catholic priests to be like, would this be accurate? Is this accurate? And in that sense, didn't want to depict anything that, you know, a Christian would watching the movie would be like, oh, man, that's not how that actually works. You know what I mean? Um, So in that sense, there is there is a case for people trying to or filmmakers and artists trying to anchor themselves in the worldview of the, the story that they're telling. I, I have a feeling every now and then I could be t- way off, but sometimes you see a thing that I think is so spiritually astute that I'm like, I wonder if that filmmaker was a Christian, you know what I mean? Like, or you read a novel and yeah. um, I'm rereading blood Meridian right now by Cormac McCarthy. And I'm like, is Cormac McCarthy yeah, a, a, a Christian? You know, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> sometimes it's unclear, uh, but it, in the very least there's a kind of spiritual intelligence and and in my worldview, it doesn't ultimately matter if Cormac McCarthy was a Christian for me to have this profound spiritual experience of Blood Meridian. You know what I right. mean? Well, he's creating God's image. There's general revelation. Mm-hmm. There's a spark of the divine in every image bearer on some level, right? So it, that, that's another question I have. When you have a a movie that is produced and directed and written by somebody who's just not a believer – but it's just such a profound Christian worldview being extra, extra, expressed. The classic one for me is uh, Grand Torino. I don't know if you yeah, saw yeah. that. Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, dude, it's got the most beautiful theme of re- of redemption, even to where, I mean, it's been out for two decades, so spoiler alert, obviously. Um, the redemptive moment at the end is is him absorbing violence and falling dead in the shape of almost like a cross. And he, it's just like, it's like this feels like it was Kirk Cameron that, you know, mm-hmm. produced it because it was just seems so explicit and, and, and moving a racist to not being racist anymore. I mean, on so many levels, it's just so many amazing Christian themes without, but most people wouldn't even pick that up. I don't think, unless you're kind of looking for it, but how do we explain that? Just that the, the, we do have this kind of longing for Christ. There, there's an, there's an attractiveness to a Christian worldview of redemption and restoration and the acknowledgement of sin and, and, that just humans are just going to be naturally attracted to you on some level. Is that? Yeah. And, and not only that, that, but yeah. you and I are, are Christians. So we, we understand everything that we receive on a movie screen on the silver screen as Christians. And so you and I can't help, but watch grand Torino and, and think like we're processing it through our understanding of the world as disciples of Jesus, which we should do. And, uh, and so we can't help, but see the, the cross shape, the films in the film's third act or to imbibe from it this powerful message about nonviolence um and the redemption uh the redemptive work of nonviolence uh, absorbing violence all those things and and you know so whether or not Clint Eastwood had those things in mind or in some kind of like I believe personally that it could be entirely possible that I don't know this guy so maybe he is maybe he isn't whatever but <laughs> it could be entirely possible that He's not a Christian whatsoever. And yet the spirit of God, which, you know, we know through the scriptures, sees fit to communicate to people who aren't Christians 
is communicating to him in some way and steering him to some end. Um, and that comes through in the film, you know, uh, and that's not to say that like, Oh, anytime you see anything that could possibly be interpreted through a Christian lens, yeah. that was the Holy spirit or anything like that. But that doesn't, even if that's not the case, it doesn't make it any less meaningful or any less powerful. Um, and we should be, you know, you and I should be able to watch a film like that and, and ask ourselves questions about what it says about the human story and the, and the world and to have a room to discuss this in Christian community with other disciples of Jesus without the first, um, you know, flag going up being like, well, what's it rated? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I've always wondered this and I have some thoughts, but they're not very thoughtful. Like when does, and I get, how do I word it? When do offensive themes become good art or bad art? For instance, you know, violence. I mean, Grant Turner has some, some, some violence, a, t- a ton of swearing, racial slurs. Um, racism is bad. Uh, I mean, swearing, that's a different category, you know, violence is not good, but real life contains all mm-hmm. these things. And so, or, or the big one that I get asked a lot is, is sex and nudity. Like, is it ever okay for a Christian to watch a movie that contains sex and or nudity? Um, is there any kind of redemptive value there? Um, is it just simply if it's gratuitous, like there's like in Gran Torino, going back to that, like the swearing and racial slurs that are in there, they, they were so essential for the true story to be told. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple old dudes living outside of what Detroit, um, that aren't Christians and they're in the barbershop. Of course, they're gonna, in, in that day and age, they're going to be telling racial slurs. They're going to be ripping on each other. You know, they're going to be swearing all the time. The scenes with some of the gang, you know, uh, gang members, they're going to be swearing. So it'd be dishonest to, you know, have them, you know, say, Oh shoot. Or whatever, yeah, yeah, you know, they're just not going to, that's just not real life. That's dishonest with, with sex and nudity. Is that a different cat? Like that one gets tough for me. Um, is there ever like a, a place to say objectively for all people, all Christians, you should not be watching. I'm not, I'm not talking like porn, but I'm talking like, you know, maybe like a rated R Oppenheimer. People have asked me, you know, totally. I haven't seen it, but apparently it's got some nudity sex scene and they're like, should I watch it? Cause the rest of the movie is really good. Yeah. And anyway, how, how do you categorize things that when does violence become good art or bad art swearing, good art, bad art, especially something like sex. and nudity? Yeah. Well, I'll start from the outset by saying, I don't think that like blanket terms are ever that helpful, meaning like, well, this one piece yeah. goes too far and, and is thus off the off the table for any moral Christian. And I realize that that, you know, like opens up the gates for well, what about this one or that one or that one? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the thing that I used to constantly argue, I think, you know, in the when I was coming of age as a young artist or art enthusiast or whatever and into my early musical career that I was arguing, it felt like almost unilaterally at the kind of conservative evangelical culture was an artistic depiction of a thing is not necessarily an endorsement of a thing. Um, and now I feel as if that is the conversation I'm having with the more progressive bubble of culture. An artistic depiction of a thing is not necessarily an endorsement of a thing. We can keep Grant Torino is a great example because it depicts racism, but it does so to right. condemn racism. Uh, and it, and right. you can't condemn racism without depicting it artistically. The, you know, the analogy I make in the book is like of a, 
of a parent who wants to explain to a child not to use a swear word and then has to say the swear word to say, this is a bad word. <laughs> don't use it. Those are fun. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, this is the conversation I've had with my kids or they hear a word and they're like, what they are, they're saying it kind of wrong. And you're like, okay, well the word's actually this don't say it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm depicting it yeah. in order to denounce it. I'm saying, this is the word. You're not going to hear me say it. You don't use it. You know what I mean? Um, and I think the same goes in art. It's a conversation that I had early on when I started writing novels or even in uh, the, the music that my band would make. It was like, why do you depict these things, even fictitiously or even aesthetically in your music? And you're like, um, the easy one is violence. Uh, you know, some of my novels have violent scenes yeah. in them. Like, thought you were pacifists. I'm like, I am. And so I write about violence. You know, like, I feel very strongly about this topic. And so how else to... Um, condemn it other than to depict it or to satirize it in a satire. You know what I mean? Like, or to, um, again, a book, like a writer like Cormac McCarthy writes about the horrors of violence um, in a way that not only doesn't glamorize violence, it becomes exhausting. You're, you're just like gross, man. The human humans are awful. You know, that's the experience of reading something like the road or blood Meridian or so an artistic depiction of a thing uh, is not necessarily an endorsement of a thing. And I think that that goes with sex and nudity as well. Uh, and I think that, you know, the argument that I would make is that, of course, you could present any number of exhibits in order to say art and entertainment has dealt with sexuality in such a way as to provoke titillation from the audience. It's there to um for you to you know in in our kind of vocabulary to evoke lust from the audience it's you know what i mean mm-hmm. um of course of course that happens i'm not saying it never does and that every kind of depiction of sex and nudity is like solely artistic of course that stuff can be in a movie or in a book or whatever for the sole purpose of um provoking the audience to lust that said Um, To say then that like any kind of film that contains sex or nudity or any novel that contains sexuality or whatever it might be, a painting, um, is is inappropriate for a Christian to appreciate or to admire or to just watch gets you into all kinds of trouble. You know, if you ask someone like Tim Mackey at the Bible Project about what the heck is uh, the Song of Songs, why is that in there? Um, he'll tell you, and I think this is in the language of one of the Bible Project's videos, that the the consensus on, or, you know, like a lot of um, Bible scholars agree that it's a collection of erotic poems that is meant to be, I think in their language, read and enjoyed. And so it seems as, and if you read Song of Songs, of course, there's like, it, you know, there's some anachronistic stuff that's like, well, I wouldn't use these terms if I was trying to be erotic. Um but it's clear that it's it's over-the-top sexualized and gratuitous and very explicit. And even the metaphors are very thinly veiled. It's like, yeah, I know what that means. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and, God, and God is the co-author. God was like, and put it in the Bible. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and, and there's a rich tradition throughout not just art history, but, but church history of art that engages – sexuality in a meaningful way because that's part of the human experience and and not in a way that's meant to like um dehumanize people or to objectify people at all 
you know, I, I tell this funny story in the, in the book about how, um, often throughout history, the Sistine Chapel has been the source of division amongst, uh, you know, kind of sensitive Christian art critics. Um, it was then, it is now, there's this kind of, and I, I don't mean this to pick on the guy, but I found this hilarious to me story about John Piper visiting the Sistine Chapel and not appreciating, <laughs> he didn't like the nudity. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I think I, there's some quote where he says like, is God mooning us, you know, or some kind of thing like that where, uh, so I, but you know, like, I don't know of many people, they, they must be out there that would visit the Sistine Chapel for the purposes of, you know, like it, you know, provoking their own carnal desire. Um, I think today, even those of us who don't consider ourselves like, um, art enthusiasts would probably look up and be like, man, that's crazy. This guy painted all this. Wow. You know what I mean? And admire it in some meaningful way or painting like the Venus de Milo or Michelangelo's David, um, that in their own times were, um, questioned for their, uh, lack of restraint. Really? You have to put this right in the front of the painting. Um, a film like Oppenheimer, you know, I saw Oppenheimer and, and I understand that kind of like, um, if someone were to say to me, like, I was told that Oppenheimer has this scene in it, and I don't know if that's great for me, I would say, I admire your self-awareness. Um, you should, you know, the, the, as with anything, you know, the disciple of Jesus is to exercise the kind of discernment that's like, I'm going for holiness. I want to be um, completely within the will of God and obedience to King Jesus. I think personally that that won't necessarily always exclude works of art that other people might find offensive or problematic. So the older I get, the more challenging it's become to take care of my health. And this is why I've been consistently taking AG1 for over a year and a half now. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut health, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition by constantly refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And I could personally, I could say I can truly notice the difference. I've uh, more sustained energy throughout the day, more uh, mental clarity and focus. And I could live with the peace of mind that my overall health is being improved uh, since I'm giving my body the nutrition that it needs. And even though I try to eat as healthy as I can, um, except, I don't know, the other night I literally put down seven jack-in-a-box tacos. I wish, I wish I was making that up. But in any case, I, I, in general, I try to eat healthy, okay? But even if you eat healthy, it's difficult to give your body all the nutrition that it needs without adding some kind of nutritional supplement. And I used to take all kinds of pills and vitamins and green powders and all that stuff. But with AG1, I no longer need all that. AG1 is a complete and extremely potent nutritional supplement. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamins vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash TITR. That's drinkag1.com forward slash TITR. Check it out. I, I do wonder about like, yeah, all the nudity in historic Christian art, <laughs> which most of it was like nudity. It seems like, like back then was that seen as provocative when Michelangelo carved the statue of David was that seen as where people like 
gosh, she's really pushing the envelope. Yeah, I was surprised that by that. You know, this totally is not a big deal. I'm curious. Yeah, the, it seems as if if you go back through art history, and I think I approached it with this, because a lot of this I learned researching the book. It's not like, you know, I have some kind of degree in art history or anything. But um, I kind of assumed that something like the work of Michelangelo would have been regarded in its time as par for the course. You know, like, oh, that's the way we depicted things back then and people were less sensitive. Right. Uh, but not so. You know, there's been a long history of people being offended by something like the Sistine Chapel or Michelangelo's David and for the same reasons that people today are, might be offended oh, by really? the depiction okay. of nudity in yeah. art. You know, and I think that, you know, the, I have a whole chapter about it in the book. It's called Sex, Porn, and Radiology Technicians. <laughs> Uh, because you like my titles. That's why I told you. Of course that's your title. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting to me, and this is something that I came to, you know, upon the course of writing my book that in other vocations, we allow for, you know, um, the, the Christian to enter into certain environments in which they might have to engage the human body nude in a, a way that could possibly put them at some kind of um, sin risk, if you like, uh, the, the analogy I make, or the, you know, the hypothetical I make is of a radiology technician that does mammograms and, um, you know, attractive, some uh, woman that comes in, he's attracted to her. He's going to see her naked. It's part of his job. I don't know that his church community would necessarily be like, quit your job. You should not be in the medical field. You know what I mean? We would probably instead encourage him into a kind of accountability and discernment, um, that could uh, steward him toward righteous behavior and that that kind of thing. And yet with the arts, yeah. we treat them as if they're entirely expendable. So if there's any risk whatsoever, just cut out the art. There's no inherent necessary value in it anyway. So but I think that like we, we need more thoughtful discernment. Not anything goes by any means, but more thoughtful discernment about how we approach even something like the depiction of sexuality in art. I didn't even think about the relationship between certain professions that cause you to see explicit nudity that we typically don't, I mean, some people do raise, you know, when did the gynecologist, the heterosexual male gynecologist decide this is a career path I want to go in, you know, like if he said as a 15 year old, I want to be yeah, a guy, people it. probably, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Bit, nevertheless, there we are, you know, but like, could that be a case to where Christians in certain contexts, I'm assuming, <laughs> because of the context can see and come very close to uh, nudity mm-hmm. um, in a way that's not sexualized, that's not a stumbling block, you know, and could that transfer over to the depiction of nudity or a sex scene in a movie? The problem is though, like, like you said, I mean, in almost every instance, especially a sex scene, the the creator is present is embedding this scene in the narrative to produce less. Not, not in every case. I'm trying to think of one where that wouldn't be um, simply gratuitous or to titillate. Is that the right word? That yeah, just sounds it does. But, you know, I think that the, easy, titillate, the easiest but. way to find those examples is in the depiction of sexuality that is not romantic and is intended to disturb rather yeah. than um, you know, like, you know, incite some kind of lust or like, Ooh, it, or even like, it's not even romantic, you know, is there, um, what we would call I, a tasteful is a strange word to use, but like a PG 13 love scene 
it's probably not it's not going to have nudity in it per se or even a pg-13 love scene that does have nudity like in james cameron's titanic or something like that that kind of brought up yeah. this big argument about like well i mean he's painting so what is it is that sexualized is it not sexualized but if you think about a film like deliverance which has this kind of infamous um rape scene in it uh of, of men um with a male victim um, it's a hypersexualized moment in the film, and it is absolutely not meant to communicate anything that would provoke the right, audience right. to lust. Or even, you know, um, the novel and subsequent film adaptations of something like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which deal with sexual violence in a, in a pretty explicit way, especially David Fincher's film adaptation of that novel, in, in such a way that, you know, when I saw it, people were leaving the theater. It was so over the top. Clearly not meant to incite arousal in, in anyone. In fact, it's mm. the, to the same end that I would argue, like, why put this in the, your movie? To condemn sexual violence, you know, to, to okay. put the viewer in such a oh, position where they're like, it's almost unbearable. And, and, it, and it incites... They're turned off by the sexual Yeah, it incites violence. kind of a rage response as opposed to a, a mm. lust response. And it opens, you know, and David Fincher's argument, the director of the, the American version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo... His argument was that he, he felt as if it was a cop-out to depict, you know, a, a woman who's being overpowered by a male aggressor and then cut, you know, uh, that's not, that's not um, accurate. And it does an injustice to the reality of sexual violence to not force the audience into some kind of experience of the, the, shared with the victim. It doesn't create empathy. It doesn't um, create the kind of appropriate disgust over sexual violence at the same time there are there were and are people who would see something like david venture's adaptation of the girl with the dragon tattoo and think um it's completely inappropriate to depict rape in a mainstream movie or in a, a movie in general and don't we have enough of that that kind of thing and, and on both sides like hmm. conservative pearl clutchers and progressive moral police you know like you can't put that in a movie in the same way that they would argue for you know like banning books you know that they're they're kind of in cahoots the conservative progressive circles on these things like if it's got this word in it it's yeah. got to get out of the libraries if it's got yeah. this scene in it it shouldn't be in a film so yeah. that obviously that doesn't do away with or that doesn't resolve the issue of a movie like oppenheimer which has a love scene that kind of um borders on both things because in the case of oppenheimer it's an adulterous love scene that that sets up a, a tragedy that comes in the third act of the film so it's necessary for the story would you say well, i mean maybe they didn't need to reveal it i think you know saying something yeah, that's necessary for the about. film it, it's like you, who can say because you know what i mean like uh yeah. the the creative act isn't entirely objective it's so subjective to say to christopher nolan apparently it was necessary to depict to, and i've you know, seen enough. I'm not like a Christopher Nolan fanboy or anything, but I like uh, some of his movies as much as the next guy. Uh, it seems to me that he's a very thoughtful artist um, and maybe one of our most thoughtful living filmmakers at the currently, you know, um, who is, uh, who makes, he's one of our only, him and Denis Villeneuve, you know, has made Dune, the Dune films uh, most recently. Oh, yeah. Um they're, and Paul Thomas Anderson, they're probably three of our uh, only living directors who make big budget spectacle movies that are also kind of like art house movies. Yeah. He seemed to think it was necessary to include this 
love scene between Oppenheimer's lover that becomes an indiscretion against his wife later on in the film. You could obviously argue like, oh, well, they could have just described it or they could have depicted it in a less gratuitous way. Um, But I leave those discernments to the artist and I reserve my own discernments as the viewer, you know, and whether or not it's appropriate for me uh, to watch. You know, I've heard from people that that argue and I understand why and I understand that that many times it's motivated by a desire for holiness that that's like, well, you know, it's it's just impossible. It's impossible for um, someone to see these things and not be titillated or not lust. Um, but then that becomes again, the whole, like, so can our doctors, you know, we, we usually understand that doctors can enter into a mature position, even if they're heterosexual, even if they're prone to a kind of carnal mentality that they should be able to exist and operate in their vocation without objectifying the people that they, Mm -hmm. um, see, uh, as doctors, even if they see them naked, even if they see them in a way that mm-hmm. to them is sexualized in some to some degree, um, I, I've got to assume that art, because it's so valuable to God, um, and because God is not afraid to depict sexuality in art, there's got to be a way for artists to work with the idea of sexuality and and the human physicality, bo- the body, um, in a way that was n- not lustful for them, not lust, not necessarily lustful for the viewer. But again, you know, I think that like Holy Spirit conviction, discernment have to enter into that conversation. It's the blanket statements that become, for me anyway, a bit problematic to say no one should. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so much of it, it's not just subjective on an individual level, but also on a cultural level. Uh, Certain things are highly sexual and certain cultures just aren't in other cultures. I mean, I I had a a cousin of mine who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea and, you know, she said, uh, I could walk down the street bare chested with a dress on, no one would bat an eye. But if I walked around fully clothed wearing blue jeans, I would be, you know, but all the eyes of every man yeah. in that crowd would be groping me up and down, you know, like, um, and, or like in, uh, you know, we, my wife's from France. And so we, we've gone to France quite a bit and dude, yeah, those beaches are crazy, dude. Like they, I mean, not only do you have every single male wearing a speedo, which the, that, that, to, to my, <laughs> it's art. Speedos are. <laughs> that's a, that's a, but but like like it's not uncommon to have you know a third of the women you know not wearing a ba- you know not wearing a top you know and it's like but the thing is, in that culture people you don't and I, I didn't know I'm on the beach I'm like golly you know like I'm looking at my kids like all right let me let me go find them you know um but I'm looking around at the other guys and they're not like they're not even noticing it's like it's not even you know but it's like wait a minute isn't that that is isn't I don't know. That's not, that's not universally, uh, this, it's not the same, like that, if that happened in California, it would be like every, you, you looked around at the guys on the beach and every single guys would be just, oh, yeah. over, you know, but even, um, and I'm sure there's other, um, the differences yeah. between a place like California and like Oregon, you know what I mean? California has a culture. If, if you go to <laughs> yeah. Southern California, um, and to the coast, it's not uncommon for the dudes and the women to all be in their bathing suits, like at a juice bar, or, you know what I mean? And and yeah. no one's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this place. But uh, it's just not part of our everyday life in a place, in a cold place like yeah. Oregon. So if everyone was walking around, and, and you know, it'd be like, oh, my God, the, yeah. the indiscretion of these individuals. Um, so, yeah. And not only does it vary culture to culture, the threshold of um, danger 
for the individual, for the disciple of Jesus varies from person to person. You know, I, I've, yeah. I've had people say other well-meaning, intelligent pastors who would be like, well, you can't use Song of Songs because it's, it's poetry. That's not the same as a movie. And then, you know, and this is a true story. Later that same day is the actual conversation I had with a pastor where I, we're, you know, I was in the middle of writing this book and we were talking about it. I go and meet with another pastor who's a, a friend of mine. She is a pastor of women and who was telling me, she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm working with this um, woman through a brutal sex addiction um, and her uh, drug of choice, if you like, was uh, the written word. She read romance novels, short stories she found online that were erotic. Erotic fiction was what um, she used. Erotic, erotica. Yeah, erotica. And she, uh, according to this pastor friend of mine, she's like, oh, she would probably be grossed out by something like internet porn, uh, you know, watching videos or something like that. But she's uh, has a crippling addiction to this other kind of erotica, which is totally pornographic. Um, because that's what incites that lust response in her and not this other thing. So the idea that, you know, and, and throughout not just church culture, but pop culture, we've kind of fallen into these stereotypes that like, Oh, men are visual and women are, you know, idea based or whatever it is. And I've just not found it to be statistically or experientially true. It, It turns out that, especially if you're a pastor and you work with all kinds of different people and they're telling you like, this is the thing that, um, the sin that I feel as if I can't conquer, it's, they're just so different. People's sensibilities are so different. Yeah. I know a lot yeah. of people that would have gone to see Oppenheimer and not just because they're so mature, but just because of their wiring and disposition, they probably would have been like, yeah, gross. This is awkward and tacky to have this sex scene in here. And they probably wouldn't have enjoyed it and wouldn't have thought twice about it. Um, but something else, something, you know what I mean? Something else would really provoke them. So the idea that, Oh, we we all have the same exact kind of fragilities, is isn't really helpful, and then it contributes to more blanket statements. Like this is never good for anyone. This is good for anyone, and it takes certain meaningful works of art off the table um, that could enrich the spirit. You know, for example, if someone would have told you, "Oh, that that movie, uh, the, this Clint Eastwood movie sucks, man. They it's got slurs in it. That's never cool. That's never okay." Um, don't watch yeah. this thing, then you could have been robbed of a meaningful spiritual experience um, that, you know, and I, I'm not trying to like make it more than it was, but for some people like in myself included, I've had meaningful like landmarks in my discipleship and in my life that have happened in the course of reading a book or watching a movie or hearing some album yeah. um, that changed the kind of person I was or changed my perspective on the world in in conjunction with like my relation you know like i'm experiencing them with god in a meaningful way um and it seems like i mean just read telling you read the read that bible man if you go in there with scissors and you cut out every art art installation and weird symbolic ritual and parable and poem and um insane sign act like an offensive uh metaphor you'll have some genealogies even the genealogies have like i hesitate to use a word like code but yeah there's an aesthetic value to the placement and the numerical values and who is in there and who isn't in there even the genealogies there's so much aesthetic concern for even the construction of the bible itself you'll just have you won't have any bible left you know what i mean yeah there's uh, made me think i don't know why this came to my head 
is something you said like 30 seconds ago, but um, I forgot what you said. Anyway, I, I don't think I've ever said this before, but the band that has inspired my Christian faith more than more than any other band is the band Rush. Oh, you'll, you might appreciate Okay, this. all right. I'm ready for this. Um, okay, not, not so much. I mean, their lyrics are incredibly thoughtful. Neil Peart, who wrote... Uh, most of their song, all of their, all of their songs, most of their songs, um, was a genius. I mean, he, after like, he, he, he read like se- several books a week, um, like big tone, ph- philosophical tomes. The guy was a, just a brilliant, brilliant guy, kind of a recluse. Like he was not known as being a very social person. Like after they, you know, play a concert, he'd go back to his hotel room and like read like Ayn Rand or something, you know, like that's just the way he was wired. So the lyrics, the lyrics, especially the older stuff were just incredibly intelligent. But they were, um, you know, obviously they made it big, sort of, but they were always counter, very countercultural. They never played into what the audience wanted. They would produce and do music that they just really wanted to do, and they weren't controlled by what the audience wanted. And some of their albums just took off, 2112, uh, Moving Pictures and others. Um, others... Um, then they kind of fell flat and they, and they really didn't care. Like they were like, this is what uh, we want to produce. They, they broke all the rules on, you know, and again, I don't know enough about music to, to know, but even, you know, the whole prog rock, I think yeah. he, he helped me out here. Like prog, prog rock, rock yeah. was kind of like, what wasn't it kind of breaking kind of rules of music theory? Yeah, if that, maybe there were any rules of music, but they, they were just doing something that was just really different. Um, I mean, they, 2112 is a 20 minute song with what, like five or six parts singing about some mythological world. It's just crazy. It's like ingenious. And they're like, you can't do a 20 minute song. You can't write a 5,000 word blog with tons of footnotes. Blogs must be 800 words. You can't, you can't write on this. You can't say that. And I just, I, from, from, from the beginning of my kind of Christian journey, it's like, I, I don't, don't tell me what I can or can't do or believe, you know, like I've had that kind of just, I don't know that like. No, I want to. I want to push the envelope. I want to help people think. I want to cross lines. I want to take risks. I don't want to play into what the masses want. Um, and I don't. I just don't care. So I feel like they've almost inspired me in how I approach Christianity. Even though none of them were even, you know, as far as I know, you know, re- even religious at all. But um, yeah, are you a fan? Do you know Russia? Is I, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. You, you would appreciate. Yeah, Rashford. I actually <laughs> just recently revisited. Is it is it twenty one twelve the the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, they use uh, Tom Sawyer in the soundtrack to the Iron Claw, that uh, film about the wrestler that just came out. And as soon as you know, when the uh, the opening to Tom Sawyer, uh, even just in those first seconds, and there's like the sound of a mini moog, a a mini moog of synth. There's like you know, and that drum beat starts. I was like, oh shoot! Oh Uh, yeah. But yeah, that that kind of uh, hyper literary prog rock. I think even as just an, someone who appreciates mu- music history sounds pretentious, but like uh, I like to go and find like, oh, why was this a big deal and listen to it? And, uh, I revisited that record and was just like, man, so it's amazing to me that we have these kind of icons of now it's appreciated for its thing. But I had I have to assume that even amongst Rush enthusiasts, there was a sense of like, what? All right, now we're getting a little yeah. we're getting a little weird. But that's one of my thesis statements in the <laughs> yeah. books. In the book is that you know there's this quote uh, that I use um, from one of my favorite novelists 
who was asked in, in, in an interview, like, how often do you consider the reader as you're writing? And in a moment, reflexively, yeah, the question. novelist said, I don't, this is a, the, I think, verbatim quote, you know, I don't think about the reader ever, and I don't care. The reader is me. Um, and I, to, oh, to wow. me, I was like, freaking A, that's... My publisher, my publisher would go for that. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's different rules for, um, I would argue personally, yeah. something like Christian nonfiction, because... Um, it's not a purely creative yeah. endeavor. It's a semi-creative endeavor. We have to like go for some level of comprehension or we're wasting our time. But, uh, you know, in writing a novel or writing an album or painting a pig, I would argue that one of the most important values for any artist, and especially Christian artists, is to set aside concern for the audience. Concern for the audience inevitably creates... Um, even subconscious pandering to an audience, and you end up with these concerns about yeah. like, well, will they get it? Um, will it offend them? And I just don't see that concern demonstrated by God throughout the scriptures at all. In fact, some of God's wackiest art uh, installations or things that are, you know, think about like uh, Ezekiel and the weird street theater stuff that he does with the burning of the poop and like the binding, tying himself up. (laughs) Um, This, that was God's idea. So God's like, go do this street theater. And we're we're explicitly told that like people aren't into it. They don't like it. Um, It's supposed to communicate something powerful about Israel's sin and injustice. And before it's over, God tells Ezekiel, was like, no one's going to get it and they're not going to change. So to me, that was like a revelation because it was like, so God already knows it's not going to quote unquote work. Um, and, but he commissioned the, the street theater anyway. It's like a, what, it's, what we would describe now as performance art. Um, and it's, and it's yeah. purely aesthetic. There's like these symbols, you know, he ties himself up, he lays on his side, he burns. God wanted human poop. He settles for animal poop, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's offensive. It's like gross and it's meant to be. And God knows that it's not going to turn Israel around, but he's like, do it anyway. There's a value in the art for the art's sake, even though it's not going to be understood by the audience, received by the audience, and not have the desired effect on the audience. And you get that kind of stuff all throughout the scriptures, especially, you know, again, with Jesus, with the whole, why do you teach like this? And he's like, it's on purpose. Or why do you say this is a hard teaching? Who can accept it? You know what I mean? so I think that when um, the great Christian artists enter into a given work of art, compelled by art for art's sake, even if it is ideological in nature, even if it has a profound ideological purpose, but they do so, it's just like, this is the way I feel like it should be, then it those are the pieces that have the most profound lasting effect on the audience. It seems to me that, like you said, Rush must have not cared very much or at all about the approval of the industry, about the record label, about the audience that Pert was just kind of like, I don't know. I read this sci-fi, you know, you know what I mean? Like, he's like, I want to do, I want to do a (laughs) sci-fi concept record. And when, um, what was selling at the time would have been kind of like sexualized glam rock. Um, or when that was the new genre that was breaking through and, and Prague was, you know, uh, the prog that uh, Peter Gabriel and Genesis had kind of coined was already on its way out at a popular level. 
it's like they're like i don't care you know what i mean this the songs are gonna get longer yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh and because of that it, that that's why they have the kind of iconic status that they have um I think that the the more the artist exercises their freedom, you know, for of expression, the more powerful the piece becomes, and the more that they ladle on, you know, the audience's expectations, the more they dilute the work of art. It doesn't mean that it won't be any good. It just means that th- there's a reason that we can sometimes tell certain um, pop music or mainstream cinema that could still have great artistic value, but it's like something designed by committee. It's like, you know, clearly they wanted this to go over. They wanted to hit these action points and selling items. They want to move units and you end up with something entirely different. So I think when, when Christian artists allow themselves that kind of freedom, we get some of our best stuff. I do. One more question. I know we're a little over an hour. Um, I do fear, and I don't know enough to know if it's a legitimate fear, but when it comes to like, quote unquote, Christian worship music, has it lost its creative countercultural edge? Is it, is mainstream Christian music basically doing all of the opposite things that we're talking about? Um, Writing music that's not, that's that's primarily thinking of what will please the crowds. Um, The whole the way money, the the money factor in specifically Christian music, I've heard people say, I mean, it, it can be, you, you, man, you land a hit worship song, you make millions, you know, I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I know there's a money factor there that could, that could be um, a dangerous incentive. That's with everything, I guess. I mean, everything has that, that money incentive that could, that could go South, you know, um, or, you know, infamously Christian music is not known for being super creative. Is that fair? I mean, you're the musician. It just doesn't, it's just, like, but maybe that's, you know, I've heard all people kind of push back and say, well, if it's going to be sung by the masses, you can't sing 2112 by the masses, you know, yeah. or, or why is, yeah, my argument would, why is Christian music a genre? Mm-hmm. Well, like you don't have it, like showbread could never be sung on <laughs> Sunday mornings. I don't think maybe you do. Uh, reggae is everybody loves reggae. Who doesn't like reggae? Uh, but, but if, if if we sing a reggae song, they'd be like, "Hey, when are we going to sing a Christian yeah, worship song?" Totally. Like, it, it, like, wait, wait, how does Christian worship be kind of its own genre? That's kind of this like white middle class contemporary rock kind of feel, and it doesn't go beyond that. Is that the way it has to be, or no? Is that part of the market we've created? We've created the market, uh, unfortunately. We've created the palette, uh, or we've allowed a handful of megachurch worship conglomerates to create a palette that we refuse from which we refuse to deviate. And it's not even necessarily that the palette is in and of itself bad, you know? Uh, No, no. I, yeah. yeah. Like I, I have these critical sounding things to say about it, but it's really not about the aesthetic of you fill in the blank, you know, mega church worship band that we all sing songs by in our various churches. Cause some of it, you know, I might like a lot. Some of it might not be my personal taste, but that's fine. It's more about the fact that we uh, don't allow ourselves to stray as communities from this, the rigidity of this rule book. Um, you know, you, the pushback that you're citing, I've heard it too, and I get it, you know, that like, well, you, you want to accommodate um, a congregation to the degree that they can enter into a meaningful worship experience. And if you push too hard or go too far, 
and you lose them, then it you know ostracizes the majority, and wow, the, the minority is like, hooray, we're finally getting artsy. I get that, you know. I, and as an act of self-sacrificial love, you want to incorporate all kinds of sensibilities into the collective worship experience. But my argument would be that the reason that um, that sensibility often feels restrictive is because we are not teaching our people to go beyond that palette at all. We are not teaching them, you know, yeah, you can't sing something like Tom Sawyer at, at, by Rush at church. Um, but why? Because we have not taught our people what it means to do something like that, you know? And if you enter into different kinds of, um, you know, like worship expressions in other traditions, you know, obviously the, the kind of worship experience at an Eastern Orthodox church is going to look a lot different than a Protestant, a lot different than a Catholic, um, you know, you walk into an Eastern Orthodox worship gathering and see people kissing icons and you're going to be, what the heck is going on? But to them, this is this meaningful aesthetic gesture of um, the worship experience in the same way that they might think like, what's up with all the delay pedals and, uh, you know, like sing song. Why does everything sound like you too? You know, or why does everything sound like Coldplay? Um, historically, unfortunately, mainstream Christian worship music. And I'm, I'm using broad strokes, obviously I'm kind of being reductive, sure, but yeah, yeah. Um, we've always been about 10 years behind. Um, so our worship music is still on the heels of um, indie rock from the early two thousands. Um, and kind of, and we, and we borrow from the standards given handed down to us by whatever is popular at the time, whatever big worship band or bands, are kind of setting the standard for this is the kind of stuff you sing in church. We sing their songs um, and we might adapt them slightly different, you know, differently from congregation to congregation. But for the most part, those are the songs we're singing and we're not teaching our people what it means to have a more robust understanding of what kind of aesthetic things can happen in a worship gathering. And this goes for my church as well. Like if you came to my church on a Sunday night, it would honestly look a lot like other mainstream non-denominational churches and we sing songs by the big you know the the known worship band we sing other stuff mm -hmm. too but it's not like all of a sudden it would feel like some kind of subversive uh, wow this is so different but we are in the process and this book is part of it you know i'm teaching a series at my church now about art and the bible and and um and god and I want to give my my community a sense of what it means to like have a, a wider palette, even if we can only push it open a little bit at a time. You know what I mean? And for us, that looks like yeah. What does it look to look like to you know have long instrumental meditations for lament? You know, something that to a lot of other churches yeah. they'd be like, sure, yeah, we do that all the time. It's like, well, my people, that's new to my people, so we're mm -hmm. we're trying to you know, expand our horizons. What does it look like but, to uh, reflect on a visual during worship? You know, like, um, this is a, a painting that was meaningful to Christians throughout history. Um, while we play music, that kind of thing, which in the moment to our people is like, well, it's a little weird. We're looking at a painting in church, but okay, sure. You know, I'll, I'll go with it for now. And I think it all, it's also part of broad, we shouldn't depend on you know, the mainstream Christian worship music machine to set the stand, the aesthetic standard for church in America, in America. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, you're singing lament that that's a, that's, I've been thinking about that for the last few months. I just, 
it's hard for me to worship sometimes when it's all nothing but celebratory and victorious when you look around at the world. So, I mean, I've been doing just a ton of reading and listening on the whole Israel-Palestine issue, which is just heart-wrenching on so many levels. And it's like, I just, I, to be honest, I just haven't been able to worship at church because I'll, you know, wake up, I'll, you know, be reading a book or, you know, look at the news and just really kind of tr- trying to follow what's going on there. You know, I mean, how many 10,000 dead kids, kids getting every day, 10 kids get at least one leg amputated with no anesthetics. Like, can you imagine taking a chainsaw to your daughter's leg? Cause there's no anesthetic, like, cause it's, she'll die. Cause there's gangrene or whatever the case, like, this is what some of whom are our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through like right now. And so then I go to church, go to church and sing songs and everything's perfect. God's, God's victorious always. And, and, he delivers us always, always delivers us. And he's always there and things always work out. He's so good. It's just, I just, it's hard for me yeah, to like, totally. I don't know. Like I, and I don't, I'm not, I don't want to be the jerk in the bag, arm folded. No, it's not good for everybody. Like I, I really die. I used to be more like that. I really don't. I try to just go with it, you know, but it's just, sometimes it's just hard. Like I, I, I wish that Christian, the Christian worship experience as it's typically played in church would, would respect the complex rhythms of life more honestly. Yeah, is is maybe how I'd, I would put it. And I don't know what that looks much like. like the, you know, much but, like the much like the Psalms. Lament would yeah. be one. Like there's Bibles, Bibles filled with lament, and there's many things to lament over. And not, not that even if that's ten or fifteen percent of what we sing about, at least I don't know. Just the full on like everything's peaches and cream. All the, you know, or I look around at the room and like statistically twenty five percent of the women at least in the church have been sexually abused by usually somebody really close to them, father, um, husband, brother, sister, cousin. Most of the time they haven't worked through that. I'm, I'm looking around and they're just like, God's so good. And, and he is good. Like, I, I can believe God's good, but like, are you being odd? Like, yeah. When do we express our pain or frustration? Yeah. Or when do we sing Psalm 88? You know, God, I don't, doesn't feel like you're here. Where were you? And my, father was sexually abusing me, you know, like, have we lamented that? Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I, I'm no, I think you're, uh, that, that honestly has a lot to do with our limited palette, our limited aesthetic palette, because it's not just a question of, uh, philosophical approaches. It's a, a an aesthetic approach of, well, I mean, it's a bummer and our people are, they want to worship, you know what I mean? I, I honestly feel like, and you know, I have a different kind of sensibility. My church jokes with me all the time. It's like, you don't have to remind us we're going to die every single week, you know, like, a, that's, uh, but that, you know, and my, so my mind goes to, um, dark place or is prone to kind of like reflect on the, the tragedy more than it is celebration. And, but I do find that framing celebratory worship with, um, the profound evil that is such a common reality of our world makes our celebratory worship more subversive. And, and there's a, there's a way to enter into, um, you know, a reflection on evil. And we spend every year in Advent, uh, it's become a profound time for our community, but the first time that, you know, I do my most upsetting, darkest teachings throughout Advent, (laughs) And tell some like horrible, horrible stories, uh, leading. I shouldn't be laughing. I love it. This is yeah. Oh. I think that like a time to to like appreciate how incredible the Christmas story is. 
you have to frame it in like everything is so awful um and that's the world into which god is like i'm i'm here mm. and i'm coming to rescue it and you know i thought that no one would go with me the first time i was like this hear me out elders this is what i'm thinking for advent but they're like all right let's try it and um and and people were telling me like geez these advent talks are so heavy like this is really hard but then the christmas eve gathering is like incredible there's this sweeping like we mm. we kind of hold back on how much you know celebration we do i mean we sing some christmas hymns and things like that but we sa- save some of our most celebratory moments for christmas eve and then it's like after time for four weeks or longer talking about death and despair and darkness and the long winter of the human experience it's like god came to save us and suddenly it's like this profound and even like on a sunday to sunday basis to you know like it's not uncommon for us to especially when something heinous evil is unfolding under the world lens you know what i mean to stand up and be like we understand that this horrible thing horrible things are happening in the world every day but we all see this one um and we see it in a like because of the 24-hour news cycle we see it in a in a in a um, explicit kind of way um, and, and we should think about that and reflect on that. And we'll read a psalm together and we'll have time for meditation and prayer. Um, but then if you enter into that kind of um, God is good song, it becomes an act of defiance against the evil in, in the world and not just like an act of ignorance to try to like cover our eyes to the evil in the world, but instead being like in spite of the heinous state of affairs that is life uh, in the world. Like he is who he says he is, and then it becomes this like incredible. Mo- and but all that only happens if we have a wider, like a, a appreciation for the kind of um, artistic reflection, aesthetic reflection that we can do in a worship gathering. You know. Hey man, I gotta run. Uh, but man, this has been so good. Love talking with you, and and uh, yeah, love your honesty, man. I really appreciate you, and, and excited to dig into your book. Oh man, I'm uh, glad you uh, had me yeah, again. Thanks for coming out the Algen Raw. Yeah, again. of course. Part of the Converge Podcast Network.